I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. and welcome to the latest episode of OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. So today's topic is is something that I, I, I think is often misunderstood and, and even when it is understood, it, it's usually more complicated than most people think. Uh, today we're going to be talking about market power. And uh, since I am not an expert on market power, I, I decided to reach out and find somebody who was. Uh, so uh, on the regulatory level, market power is, is typically the concern of the Federal Trade Commission. So I've been able to get together with uh, Nicholas Franchuk from uh, the Federal Trade Commission office here in Chicago, and he's going to help us walk through market power and some of the unique twists and turns that, uh, that there are in it. Uh, how you doing today, Nick? I'm doing well. Thank you, David. Uh, and uh, just for the audience, a little bit of background on yourself. Sure. Let me begin uh, with my standard disclaimer that the views I'm expressing are mine and not necessarily those of the Federal Trade Commission or any individual commissioner. Of course. Um, as for myself, uh, I'm an attorney uh, by formal training. I have an undergraduate in economics. Um, my exact title is Counsel for International Antitrust with the Office of International Affairs at the FTC. Uh, where I've been, uh, I've been here since 1987, so I've been doing this for a while. All right. So, just to, in, in case uh, people in the audience aren't familiar, uh, broad view, what, what is the overall role of the Federal Trade Commission? The FTC has been around for a little over 100 years. It was created uh, by a statute back in 1914. Uh, originally, its mission was to challenge uh, unfair methods of competition, mm -hmm. which is competition. Um, but it also has a mandate, uh, courtesy of an amendment in the 30s, to go after unfair and deceptive acts and practices. So it's a consumer protection statute also. So it's a dual mandate, competition and consumer protection. All right. And so, you know, when you're looking uh, for that, you're, again, uh, you're, you're looking at market power. You know, how much market power does any given entity within the market have? So I guess how do we define market power? Well, market power really is more going to be on the competition side, mm -hmm. uh, which is the side I deal with. Um, market power in simplest terms is really the ability of a firm to control price or exclude competition. Um, a more exact definition would be the way economists would describe it, um, and that would be the ability of a firm or, say, a group of firms acting such as a collective cartel mm -hmm. um, in a market to raise prices profitably above the competitive level for a sustained period of time. 
a lot of loaded terms <laughs> in that definition. Well, but you know, like I said in the intro, the, the the issue is surprisingly more complicated than you would think it is because you know, as you kind of break that definition down, it, it's not enough to be able to raise prices for a week or for a, for a month. You you have to be able to to truly have that market power. It has to be over a sustained period of time. Uh, and, and and again, it has to be done profitably. That's correct. You you know you can raise prices and lose customers. Right. And that's anybody, not really that's not anybody really can raise prices. The yeah. question is, can they raise them and make a profit? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of you know to kind of set the stage for that to be uh, an effective raising of prices and thus something that you know, involves market power and would be the concern of the FTC. Right. We're really concerned about durable market power or the competition laws, I should say, are concerned about durable market power uh, as opposed to mere opportunistic behavior. Um, A lot of firms uh, may have some degree of market power simply because their product is slightly differentiated. Mm -hmm. At other times, you might have uh, temporary uh, opportunities to exert market power for example, um, a significant competitor's plant closes for a month to make repairs. Mm. As a result of that, output goes down and there's an opportunity to raise prices because the demand hasn't gone down, yet there's less outcome or less output. Um, that type of temporary uh, exercise of market power is not the concern of the antitrust laws. It's concerned about the durable market power. Well, especially because, like again, in that in that example, you know, it's not uh, opportunity. Well, I guess it is opportunistic, but there is an actual decrease in supply, which any economist will tell you demands the same. But supply goes down, price is going to go up. Correct. Uh, so that's perfectly in keeping with a competitive market in that case. Uh, well, that's right. I mean, that, that there's good market power and there's bad market power, uh, and then I guess sort of benign market power. <laughs> uh, and I would maybe categorize that example as benign market power. It's mm-hmm. just, um, it's not the, it, 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 I haven't gone and burned down my competitor's plant, um, <laughs> which would be more of an although, issue. Although that, that is a business strategy yeah. right there. Um, it is simply, you know, the, the give and take of the marketplace, the plan is temporarily shut down, maybe a season transition mm. or something like that. Um, and it's just a signal to the market uh, that prices go up. Mm-hmm. But they're going to be short-lived in that example. So then, if that's benign market power, I guess what would be good market power? Well, uh, there's, let's go to bad market power first, <laughs> okay. because I think I think market power carries a negative connotation with it. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who's taken basic economics knows that you, when you go from a competitive market to a monopoly, um, you end up with higher prices, lower output, fewer choices for consumers. Uh, reduced innovation, uh, transfer of consumer welfare to producers, uh, and then that big allocative inefficiency called deadweight loss. Mm. So it carries a lot of negative connotations. Um, and those, those should be a concern um, if that kind of market power is created through means other than competition on the merits. Mm-hmm. Um, however, competition um, and market power is also what I would call an important element of a free market system. It creates the, you know, the, the prospect of becoming uh, a monopolist or having market power and being able to charge higher prices for that it induces firms to take the risks and to go out and innovate in response to what consumers are demanding. Mm-hmm. So it's a driving force behind competition. Okay. Well, and, and and again, that's it. There, there is that level where it's inherently necessary. I, again, it, it kind of comes back to, you know, can market power be abused, or or you know, can can it become too much? Absolutely, but you're not really going to get anywhere without it. And and you know, striking that that kind of balance of you know where again market power stays in. To oversimplify it, the good column rather than drifting into the bad column. Um, 
That that's correct. It's um, the mere fact that a firm has market power in and of itself isn't a law violation without knowing how that market power was achieved. Mm. Um, if it's achieved through competition on the merits, they went out, they innovated, were more responsive to consumer demand, therefore took away sales from all of their competitors who eventually went out of business because they were too lazy to innovate. Um, that's the reward of competition. Um, there's a great case from the 1940s in which Judge Learned Hand said, you know, the competition laws tell firms they need to go out there and compete. Uh, and when they do, and you end up with the successful winner, should the courts be punishing them for mm. having done what the competition laws want them to do? And that is go out and compete on the merits. Well, and, and again, to, to gain that competitiveness, and, and I'm sure that's something we'll probably circle back to a couple times in this discussion, is uh, the similarities and differences between competition and competitiveness because they're they don't always line up no they don't and they're often they're but they're also in a situation where it's hard to distinguish whether the market power has been the product of something anti-competitive uh, as opposed to robust competition mm. particularly in the area of such as predatory pricing mm. where you know the, the basic concept behind predatory pricing and there are very few cases of predatory pricing in the US um, nowadays, uh, but the basic concept behind predatory pricing is that the firm that's the predator drops its price below its cost uh, until it drives out its competitors, mm. uh, and then afterwards raises its price to a supra level to recoup all of the foregone profits that were t during the time of predation and to make additional profits. Mm. Um, that can be easily confused with price competition. We want consumers to have lower prices um, and distinguishing between when the price is a low competitive price uh, and as opposed to a predatory price can sometimes be very difficult. Well, I, I, I would imagine that, <clears throat> again, yeah, you, that, that, that's difficult to tell except in retrospect because until they, they raise the price after driving out their competitors, I'm sure whether it's, it's a predatory pricing strategy or not, the, the firm is always going to claim that it's just being, it's just competition. That, that's probably true, which is, you know, again, you see very few, uh, they've almost gone the way of the unicorn uh, <laughs> here in the U.S., predatory pricing cases. Um, the, the first thing that you will look at in a predatory pricing case in the U.S., um, or should look at, is assume that the price is predatory, what's the ability of the firm to recoup those profits? Mm. So we're going to look to see if there are significant barriers to entry or re-entry once it raises its price. If it raises its price and the firms that were previously driven out of the market can quickly re-enter mm -hmm. and compete the price back down. Well, especially because they, they would want to because not the price to. is sky high. Well, there's your price signal for firm. The higher price is a signal for more people to enter the market. And if that happens and the market corrects itself, uh, you don't want to intervene in those situations because you will have deprived consumers of those lower prices mm. during this alleged predation period. Well, and I'm sure in in those rare situations, it's it's always a little tough because for for the FTC to you know investigate and potentially um, you know bring bring a, a filing for that. Uh, that's got to be pretty unpopular because you've got a company out there selling at dirt cheap prices and you're saying, no, 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 it's, it's not right. And, and I, I would have to imagine consumers aren't all that happy with that. Well, I mean, I think what you get is a lot of, of complaints from competitors mm. and they're looking at it saying maybe that the, the, they're selling at a price that's below my cost. But that's not the proper measure. The proper measure is, is it below some appropriate measure of cost mm. of the firm that's engaged in the predation? Well, it, it may be selling lower than its competitors because it's more efficient. Yeah. And that's an efficiency that the marketplace should pass on to consumers. And, and reward the, 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 the firm that took the time to create that efficiency. That is correct. And so, yeah, no, it, get, it gets into some, some fairly murky territory. So... 
for in order to have durable market power, in order to, to really push out competitors, I, I, I guess is there are there clear signs of that, or is it different case to case? Well, the, certainly the thing you're looking for in durable market power is you know the the ability uh, whether there are significant barriers to entry or expansion. Mm -hmm. Uh, in my predatory pricing example, um, if there are not significant barriers to the f to f new firms entering in response to the higher price signal, uh, or existing firms expanding their output to fill the void, um, then there should be no competitive concern because the market will cure itself in the long run. Mm. So, again, with uh, our already you know a number of complications and, and, and some some fairly murky territory where it's it's difficult to tell exactly again is this uh, a drive for bad market power or is this just competition you know the market doing what the market does mm -hmm. uh, which is which is good uh, when the FTC sits down to look at a particular case uh, I guess how, how would you how would the FTC demonstrate market power? Uh, well, there, there are two general ways of doing it. Directly by showing that um, the defendants had some ability to control price, output, exclude competitors. Um, that kind of evidence is seldom available. <laughs> it does, it, there are cases where it happens. Mm. Um, I mean, in, our, in the not too recent uh, case against McWain, uh, we had direct evidence of that market power. Uh, as well as indirect evidence, which is the more common way of doing it, and and that would be per se, uh, or no, quite. that's that's something different. We okay, can, we can come back. To, per, right. per se cases are important, and and, and they do have a, an underpinning of market power in them without going through the actual demonstration of market power. Mm -hmm. But let's come back to that okay. in a bit. Let's let's address your question about proof of market power directly by showing that. The firm is actually has market power, higher prices, lower output, so forth and so on, um, or more commonly indirectly, where you would look at, uh, examine the structure of the market, how big is the firm, its competitors, um, what is the firm's market share, what has it been over time, um, what are the entry conditions. Mm. Um, even if a firm has a 100% market share. Some people may say, oh, the firm's a monopolist. But the moment that firm raises its price, <laughs> it loses its market share because all these other firms enter the market because there are no barriers to entry or there are insignificant barriers to entry. Um, that would put a check on market power. Mm -hmm. So you need to look at the market structure, including the size of the firm itself, um, as well as entry conditions. Okay. Um and then, yeah, so uh, looking at then the, the standards of proof, uh, the, the one being per se. Uh, sure. Um, the, the category of per se agreements, at least in the U.S., is, is shrunk in recent years. Um, and it's really limited to uh, the following categories. Um, horizontal price fixing mm -hmm. cartels uh, among horizontal being among competitors. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, horizontal agreements to restrict their output. Um, horizontal agreements to allocate the markets. So you and I are competitors and, and we don't agree on price, we don't agree on output, but we agree that you sell exclusively in the city of Chicago and mm -hmm. I sell in the suburbs. We've allocated the market. Those would be per se illegal, as well as the traditional bid rigging type of agreements and and typically that requires some sort of actual proof of of us sitting down and having that conversation. Uh, no, normally, in a lot of those that are prosecuted criminally by the Department of Justice come out of basically the the leniency application program mm -hmm. where someone will fess up mm -hmm. that there has been this conspiracy because it does carry with it criminal penalties. Mm -hmm. Uh, the FTC does not have criminal authority, mm. um, but you you can you can still prove agreements um, p w with means other than direct evidence that mm. the agreement exists. But that's sort of a whole different <laughs> different category uh, of both law and economics. Um, 
Now, per se, illegal agreements, the one of the categories I've just given you are deemed um, illegal uh, without any formal proof of market power or any of that type of market power analysis. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean market power is irrelevant to those cases. These cases are deemed per se illegal because history has taught us that these type of agreements always or almost always produce higher prices, lower output, without any offsetting or redeeming efficiencies. Mm. The sum and substance of these agreements are nothing more than to get an anti-competitive effect. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the, the other standard of proof being, I, I think, what's mo much more common, being the, the rule of reason. The rule of reason is the other extreme of the continuum. Uh, in those cases, um, you would be doing um, much more of an analysis of the market, uh, taking into account, in large part, the potential efficiencies of the agreement. Mm -hmm. And then weighing, you know, are the efficiencies offsetting any loss in competition, um, and then doing that type of an analysis. Well, and I guess, yeah, I mean, since since you mentioned it, because that is one interesting, uh, again, complication in, in looking at, you know, market power and, and, and firms trying to get market power is having that market power will at least typically and theoretically make them more efficient uh, because they, they don't have to spend so much time and, and effort competing um, with with the other competitors in the market, which I'm, I'm sure all of them would claim is going to allow them to lower prices. Uh, I, I Distinguishing between the uh, efficiencies gained from not having so many competitors and then the the very real potential for anti-competitive behavior because you don't have real competitors or because you push them out of the market uh, I you know always seemed like a very tricky thing to me yeah as you say that I was thinking I don't know how to classify that as a double-edged sword um, <laughs> how um, I mean you don't want if someone gains the monopoly through competition but then maintains it through anti-competitive means and becomes fat and lazy, um, those efficiencies could be lost in the long run mm -hmm. to consumers. Uh, again, going back to the notion of market power as being you know, a, an integral part of a free market system that incentivizes firms to compete, um, I think your economist would say that um, that that continued competition uh, is what's driving firms, you know, pressuring them to, to continue to innovate, so forth and so on. Um, so classifying it one way or the other in a general yeah. manner, I, you know, you're running into some difficulties. You know, obviously we see a lot of mergers where firms say we want to merge because the merged firm can be more efficient. As mm -hmm. a result of that, we can lower prices and you combine their, output. their logistics networks. You Correct. combine their their uh, market, their geographic markets. Correct. And great efficiency. And we will we will look into those. You know, one assuming that the the merger initially raises competitive concerns, mm -hmm. we will then balance into that analysis. Uh, the pro-competitive benefits, efficiency of, the, of those mergers and doing the overall assessment. Mm. And then uh, you'd, you'd uh, mentioned it a little while before too, the, the other problem you run into is um, if, you, if you do have a firm, which again, either through competition or even through uh, anti-competitive means is you know, you know, growing market power rapidly to the point where they can drive up the price, uh, for, for the more laissez-faire economists out there, they're going to say, well, that rise in price is going to create a self-correcting condition where now it, it, as that price goes up and up and up, it, it further incentivizes new entrants into the market. And if you just let it go, it'll fix itself. Again, that, that, a lot of that depends on the significance of the barriers to entry. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and how durable that market power mm -hmm. becomes. Um, Kind of coming back to sort of our, our monopolization type case, um, if if you have a monopolist or a firm with a dominant position in the market, 
very small fringe firms around, but it's achieved that position through competition on the merits, that's fine. It should be allowed mm. to charge the price it wants. Um, but if in response to the rivals starting to compete away, the firm does something to engage some type of exclusionary conduct, it contracts with all of the, the key suppliers of inputs mm. such that it it forecloses its rivals from access to those suppliers, um, that isn't necessarily competition on the merits, that's exclusionary conduct that would make that market power more durable, longer lasting, and would raise competitive concerns. Well, like, like it said, it's putting up those barriers, so I may be a, a new competitor who, based on that, that higher price, I really want to get in on this market and take advantage of that. But if, if, again, if I can't get a supplier to give me the, the materials I need to enter that market, because you know, the, the dominant you know, market power has completely closed those down to anyone but themselves, then yeah, no, the, the price could you know, quadruple. Right. Uh, and I still can't enter the market. Right. And that would raise competitive concerns. Mm. Now, if that same dominant firm, rather than tying up all the suppliers, further innovated, and regardless of its competitors' access to the upstream suppliers, the dominant firm continues to get all the sales because it's out innovating mm. in response to consumer demands, um, that's a market position that does not raise competitive mm. concerns. Well, and then I've, I've also read, a, a, again, you know, coming from, from the more uh, laissez-faire school, uh, schools of economics, uh, a uh, a point that uh, every time they bring it up, I like I, I have to spend at least a, an, an hour to an hour and a half thinking about that because it it does make a lot of sense. Which is the idea that uh, you know true true monopolies uh, can't ever act like true monopolies because of the concern that if they do raise the price, they incentivize new competitors, and if the price hits hits a high enough point, the incentive is so high that even high barriers to entry will be overcome because they want that price. And so, you know, in that logic, they're, they're effectively trying to say that monopoly, long-term monopolies are impossible, which I don't know if I agree with that, but man, does that sound like it makes sense. I, I think it makes sense, uh, but again, you know, there is, there is harm to competition and consumers during that time, yeah. and how much of that do you want to withstand? Um, well, yeah, especially I'm, because that that process could take years, and so consumers are dealing with you know much much higher prices for the for a period of you know two, three, five, ten years right. while new entrants. Going back to that that last concept uh, in the definition of market power, it has to be durable market power, mm. um, long lasting. You know, now there isn't. A specific time frame on that that says one year is okay, is one year and one day is bad. Um, you know, but certainly a few weeks, a month, and, and so forth. Um, but when you start looking at three years, five years, um, and again, that may change depending on on the dynamics of an industry. Um, so, so that 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 durability becomes very important. Well, I mean, it's the importance of having the FTC to, to look at each one of the, to take these case by case, because, uh, you know, just just as we've been discussing it so far, we've we've probably come to, you know, several dozen permutations and and a couple what ifs and, and if this then that's, uh, and it, again, it's complicated and as economics is and should be. Very fact specific from case to case. Mm. And yeah, so I, I would imagine it's difficult to to create an across the board policy on market power, which is which is why it needs to be dealt with on that case to case basis. Um, I th I think that's fair to say. I mean, what you'll see, for example, in the area of monopolization or what most other jurisdictions call dominance, um, there are some jurisdictions that will use. The defendant's market share as a threshold for the presumption of dominance. Mm -hmm. For example, um, I think in in some jurisdictions, if you're above fifty percent, um, they'll take a presumption of dominance. Mm -hmm. But that's not the end of the inquiry. They're going to say, 
we also want to look at entry conditions mm. because that market share may be misleading when we turn it into a dynamic market. The market share itself is nothing more than a photograph of the market at one moment of time. It tells you nothing about the dynamics of that market. So you need to assess it further. But it does give firms in a market a sense as to when they maybe need to be a little bit more cautious in the way they act because they are holding such a large market share. Mm. And well, and uh, again, you brought it up there. And to, to me, this is always one of the, the, the most fascinating things about looking at market power, especially now that, we, you know, in, in the, 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 the modern world that we live in, where, where technology is advancing at, at a, an increasingly rapid rate. And that's the, the idea of market power uh, over time and, and how, uh, you know, market power from 10, 20 years ago uh, can just vanish uh, without either the regulators doing anything to it or uh, the, the, you know, uh, primary holder of that market power making any mistakes. And... Um, I think you know before the uh, the 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 one case uh, before the uh, interview here that I brought up was office supply superstores, and how uh, what the the merger uh, that was uh, attempted between Staples and I always mix them up office. Office Depot, Depot was the first one. And that was in 1997? Uh, I think that's the time of the the initial court decision. Mm. So right around the mid 90s. And you know again, yeah the the FTC. Uh, came in and said no. This this would create an uh, anti-competitive conditions. But then, yeah, the second case was in two thousand uh, uh, about two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. Yeah. That was that was the Office Depot Office Max merger. And and in that one, uh, the FTC had had no issue with it. They didn't see a competitive problem. And you know, you can look at that in in a vacuum and say, well, wait a minute, you know. It, it was a problem in 1997, not a problem in 2011. Um, you know, what changed? And, of course, anyone who was alive during that time knows exactly what changed. There was this thing called Amazon that came in and disrupted everything. And, and basically, it, it upended the idea of, of market power, at, at least, I mean, in this case, specifically in office supply superstores, but really... In a lot of in, in in all of retail, and once once you have this uh, nationwide option where you know if Staples wanted to start raising its prices on reams of paper, they can do that. But if they raise it too high, I'm just going to go to Amazon and I'll have it on my doorstep in two days, and that really shattered what that what what kind of market power they could put together. Um, right. The, the, that, that case is a good example uh, that goes back to the first element market in our definition of market power. Mm -hmm. We talked about firms in a market. Um, the original office, uh, the Staples Office Depot case from the mid-90s, the relevant market that the FTC defined in that case was the sale of consumable office supplies through office supply superstores, mm -hmm. stores like Staples, Office Depot, uh, Office Max, and that stores like Walmart, um, uh, um, Sam's uh, Clubs, and so forth. Um, although some of those, some or all those products may have been available at those other stores, they did not constrain the pricing mm -hmm. by the office supply superstores, so they weren't considered to be part of the same relevant market for purposes of antitrust analysis. When you move to your to your second case, the Office Depot Office Max, some roughly 15 years later, the market had changed. So although we were still talking about the sale of consumable office supplies, stores like the Amazon's uh, online stores, as you mentioned, mm. were a competitive alternative for consumers as well as other brick-and-mortar stores like Walmart and Target were starting to get more sales. So they were putting more of a competitive constraint on those firms and therefore became part of the market definition. With that broader market definition in terms of who was in it, 
um, it cut down on the amount of market power that would have that that office. Uh, I'm sorry, that Staples Office Depot would have had had the market been defined more narrowly as it was in mm. the mid '90s. Well, and and again, even even with your the the other brick and mortar stores by 2011, they were ramping up their online presence. So. You know, it, it creates this, you know, I think one, one of the original problems with the the 97 case was that uh, had the merger been allowed to go through, there would be significant geographic areas where which only had one office supply superstore because, uh, yeah, Office Depot, Office Max, and Staples were not, all three were not in every geographic region. And so, again, you're going to have a problem because in local geographies they can start to raise prices right except yeah. except when you can get everything through the mail that doesn't matter anymore yeah you're dealing in in these cases you know we talked about a relevant market there's the product side or the service side which would be the the office consumables um, and then there's the geographic reach mm -hmm. uh, and you're exactly right the the econometric analysis that was done in those cases showed that in some geographic markets you were basically the only two superstores that were in that market were merging so we were merging mm -hmm. the monopoly uh, in other markets there may have been the office max in there so you'd be merging and you'd have a duopoly mm -hmm. in fact there was to, to, to further underscore the the product market being is office super uh, uh, supply superstores the economist in that case had a lot of data uh, mm. where they were able to do some robust econometric analysis and basically show that how prices for the same products differed from one geographic market to another based on whether or not there were two or three office supply mm. superstores. And then, uh, now you, again, along the similar idea of, of market power changing over time due to completely outside the box variables you you uh, before we started recording you'd mentioned the the Toys R Us case that's one of my favorite cases uh, Toys R Us uh, I think everybody's probably familiar with it uh, maybe in 10 years people won't be um, <laughs> oh I, I was a Toys R Us kid well I grew up at a time when when at, at Christmas holidays your parents took you to Toys R Us because that's where you saw the toys mm -hmm. uh, when my nieces and nephews were growing up in the 80s, when we were shopping for them, you went to Toys R Us. Um, Toys R Us was the dominant place to buy toys. Mm. Uh, and it realized that. Um, and in the 90s, um, with the advent of warehouse clubs starting to sell toys, uh, Toys R Us used its market power to pressure the manufacturers of toys not to sell the same toys to the club stores as that were being sold to Toys R Us, mm. which allowed Toys R Us to charge more for those products, mm. uh, offer consumers fewer choices, uh, and as a result of that, the FTC obtained an order uh, prohibiting that conduct. Um, but markets are dynamic. Um, by 2010, 2011, um, there had been growth uh, of other, other toy sellers uh, in the market. Walmart, Target began selling a lot. Uh, online firms began competing away. Uh, and as a result of that, Toys R Us petitioned the Federal Trade Commission to modify that earlier order um, because it was hurting them in their ability to compete onward and demonstrated to the satisfaction of the commission uh, that Toys R Us was no longer this powerful firm than it was 15 years earlier. Um, fast forward a few more years to today, uh, and the giant from 20 years ago is now bankrupt. Yep, and 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 again, that over the course of uh, a brief 20 years, it it went from you know a uh, such a sizable market share, such so so much market power that again the the FTC needed to intervene to out of business uh, because again just over those 20 years a lot has changed yeah and, and 20 years uh, 20 years may 
be a long time in some industries. I mm. mean, I can see, I can imagine in some of these high tech markets we're seeing today um, that somebody comes in with the next innovation next week and leapfrogs and takes a large chunk of the market overnight. Mm. Uh, so markets can be very dynamic in that regard. Uh, and that's part of the complex analysis that needs to be done in these cases mm. to really understand competition and how it works. Well, and and uh, like again, just now looking at the the toy market, I know the the day after Toys R Us made its announcement, uh, I saw an article that uh, KB Toys or the the people who own the 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 bare bones that's left of KB Toys announced that they're they're thinking about re-entering the market. Uh, again, it it changes, it morphs. Right. One thing causes another, which leads to another, and and you know. It, any any uh, case of uh, anti-competitive behavior, really, like you said, it's it's a photo in time. It it, it is true in 1997, but give it five years, that might be different. Uh, especially again, I'm I'm sure um, you know for for the 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 FTC's analysis, again the rapid growth in online options for everything uh is not is not helping you guys make a simple determination anymore no it's i mean it's it's just part of the analysis that needs to be done you've mm. got to do your work um and and uh think about the dynamics of the market i mean we you know uh, we have about 75 i think phd economists at the ftc mm. uh and certainly on the antitrust side of the agency they're intimately involved uh, in all of this work, uh, because it is that's such economic underpinnings and understanding these markets and but, coming up with plausible theories um, as to why this may, you know, this particular conduct, this particular agreement uh, may not be anti-competitive. In fact, it may be pro-competitive or mm. at worst competitively benign. So the economists play a significant role in that analysis. Well, and it's, yeah, it is. It's very complex, even even to find that that snapshot in time, and then to then add that, that four di fourth dimensional element to it that, yeah, that that's today, you know, again, tomorrow, what's, what's the effect of that going to be? Uh, I mean, that's top tier economic analysis. Sure, I mean, econ you know, economics is, is evolving. Um, we were talking about per se cases earlier in this interview. Uh, and if you go back about 35 years to the mid 70s, um, there were a lot of vertical arrangements mm -hmm. uh, between a manufacturer and a distributor, for example, such as minimum and maximum resale price maintenance mm -hmm. or um, exclusive territories for the distributor to sell that were treated as illegal per se, just mm. the same way as horizontal price fixing that we talked about. Um, but beginning in 77, the Supreme Court had a, a series of cases over the next 30 years dealing with each of those vertical relationships uh, and changed them from being per se illegal to subject to rule of reason mm. based on learning of economics and the notion <laughs> that those vertical restraints uh, were may have had some restraint on the amount of intra-brand competition, so mm. competition between four dealers, um, but those restraints may have actually uh, helped uh, inter-brand competition mm. and helped the existing four dealer with the exclusive territory compete more effectively with the Chevrolet dealer mm -hmm. or with the Buick dealer. Uh, and the Supreme Court said, look, the concern should be on inter-brand competition, and so long as there is significant inter-brand competition, that will put a check on any lost intra-brand competition. Mm. Well, and, and yeah, again, getting down to, you know, not simply looking at that as, well, again, it's a, it's a vertical arrangement, clearly must be anti-competitive. Uh, you got to expand out that lens and see uh, again if those impacts are actually happening. Now uh, you had mentioned it earlier, and and I want to kind of circle back to it: the idea of the relevant market and how um, you know again we we might look at 
a, a merger or, or just, you know, competition in, in what we think is the, the market. But um, from everything I've ever read, a lot of what the, a lot of that initial step from the, the Federal Trade Commission is just determining what the relevant market is. Yeah, especially in merger cases, uh, a lot of time is spent on defining the relevant market. Um, and it's really the area, thinking of it in a couple dimensions, both product or service and a geographic scope um, in which competition is taking place and which the competitive harm uh, might arise. Um, so it's two dimensions to those markets. We look Generally, it's a product market, but as they say, it could be services that are being offered. Uh, and then the geographic area to which consumers can turn to obtain that product uh, or that service. Um, and in assessing those kind of markets, for example, a product market, um, we're looking to find what other products uh, afford a significant constraint on the pricing of the product that is our candidate market. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if we if someone said Coca-Cola is a market, uh, we would do this, what we call a hypothetical monopolist test. Again, this is where economists are so useful. And we would say, suppose a hypothetical monopolist of Coca-Cola were to impose a small price increase, say 5%, what would happen? And if enough people would turn away from Coca-Cola and substitute other products, say Pepsi, mm -hmm. um, to defeat that price increase, to make it unprofitable, going back to our market power mm -hmm. definition, um, then that's not a defensible antitrust product market. We would have to then include, in my example, Pepsi, and then rerun that hypothetical monopolist test and ask if a hypothetical monopolist of Coke and Pepsi were to try to impose that 5% price increase, what would happen? And if it turns out that some people would go to other products, but not enough to defeat that price increase from being profitable, so you end up with a profitable price increase, then you have a candidate relevant product market. And the same analysis, same iterations you would go through for defining a geographic market. That's the market in which we're looking to see, for example, in a merger, is there going to be competitive harm? Mm -hmm. And and again, uh, like you said, that relevant market can kind of depend on either again the product line uh, or a geography. Uh, right. It it depends. Right. Go back to our, um, uh, you know, with, with with the firms that are in the market. Um, if you go back to let's say the Staples case, uh, and then you go to the second Staples case, and then you start seeing that people can turn to Amazon, other online, mm. to defeat that profitable price increase, then you've got to include them in the market. They're, they're within the market. The relevant product market was still the same in that case. Mm. It's just who was participating in those markets, so who could people turn to? Okay. And, well, and again, you can flip that in a, a theoretical case, and you, you may still have the, the, the same competitors for a given product, but if a substitute out there crops up in the meantime, that's going to change the relevant market, or right. they need to be added to that relevant market. Right. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the exact same product. Uh, it can be, again, just really anything that consumers could shift to as an alternative. Well, what they would shift to uh, as an alternative, uh, and the shift would, again, be such that it would make the price increase unprofitable. Mm -hmm. The mere fact that consumers are shifting to it, it would not be conclusive of it being within the same product market. Mm. It's, it's to what degree are they, sh they shifting if to they, it. If they shift enough, then. The, the flip side of that is, you know, the fact that there are some consumers in my Coca-Cola example who simply say, I will not drink anything but Coca-Cola. Those inframarginal consumers that even in response to a 50% price increase are going to drink Coke. Um, the fact that they're not going to shift doesn't change the dimensions of that market mm -hmm. unless you have a market where the producer has an ability to discriminate or target specific customers. Mm -hmm. So if they had an ability in the Coca-Cola example you were an inframarginal consumer and said, I'm going to drink Coke no matter what the price. Mm -hmm. um, if they could somehow target you 
and charge you a higher price than they mm. would charge everybody else, then those inframarginal consumers might be a separate product market. And mm. we saw that in the most recent Staples case, where instead of going to the office consumables, um, the, the case that the commission uh, had a couple of I think it was about a couple of years ago, yeah, losing time, 2015, 15-ish, yeah. um, the product market in there was business to business mm. because there was an ability to treat those customers, to target those customers differently than from typical consumers. So it became a separate product so, market. So while if I'm buying a ream of paper, a single ream for my home printer, uh, if the price of that ream at Staples is too high, I can go online or go to Walmart or you know wherever. But for you know a, a business here downtown who needs to buy through that business to business network because they're buying in bulk, they're buying pallets of reams of paper. Uh, they don't have that same option. Yeah, I don't remember the specific facts of the case, but I think they were looking at, in that market, businesses that were buying like a half million dollars mm. or more a year in office consumables. Um, you know, you don't go down to the local store and buy a <laughs> ream of paper for those businesses. It's really not going to cover your, uh, and, your printing and it, needs. Yeah, there was a lot of evidence in that case, you know, even from the industry itself, showing that the industry itself saw the businesses sort of as a distinct set of customers. Mm -hmm. um, and that helps to underscore when proving up your relevant markets in these cases. Well then, uh, because because you'd mentioned you know the and you know Coke and Pepsi is a, a great example because they're two very comparable products and and only the the very rare person has uh, rigid brand loyalty because you know at the end of the day a cola is a cola and the thing I always found interesting with the the Coke and Pepsi that the, the actual competition between them uh, always seemed to me anyway to really only be taking place in the grocery because if i go to a restaurant coke or pepsi already has a contract with that restaurant to provide to them so you get the you know i'll have a coke is pepsi okay because that's what they carry and most people say yes uh because again a cola is a cola um so really the only place where i have to actually make a decision between whether I prefer Coke or Pepsi, uh, and and again, always, I'll caveat it by saying, always seemed to me like the only place was in the grocery aisle. Um, I, I'm not sure if that's the only place, but I understand your point. You know, people don't choose. It's unlikely that many, if any, people choose to go or not to go to Burger King because it serves Pepsi or Coke, but not both. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not driving their, their purchase decision. Mm -hmm. Although I, I suppose an, an argument could be made that that, again, if you don't like, yeah, if you really like Coke, you're just not going to go to Burger King because they, they don't There, have there Coke. may be some people Burger like that out King, there. Um, yeah, Burger King does have Coke. I, I, it's I, one I, of them. I don't visit those places. <laughs> I try not to either. Uh, so then, you know, when you know talking about uh, uh, you know getting that market power, um, what uh, we, I think we've hit on a couple of them already. But what are a few of the methods or or tactics a, a firm can go through to acquire that market power? Well, there, there, there probably isn't a finite list. Uh, mm. The three principal categories that the competition laws are concerned about, whether they're the U.S. laws or the laws that we now have, I think, a hundred and more than 120, maybe more than 130 countries with competition laws now. The three principal areas of concern are anti-competitive agreements, uh, monopolization, or what most countries call abuse of dominance, uh, and anti-competitive mergers. We've kind of talked about the first, the anti-competitive agreements, quintessential, exa quintessential example being, you know, two firms that are competing robustly decide to get together and fix their price, which mm. is basically, let's not compete on price anymore. That's gonna be per se illegal, unless it's ancillary 
to some pro-competitive integration like they form a joint venture or something of the like. Um, in monopolization or abuse of dominance, um, the principal concern is, is the dominant firm, is the firm with market power engaging in some type of exclusionary conduct that's not competition on the merits. Mm. Uh, if I'm out there innovating uh, and I build a better product and I continue to maintain my significant market share, that's competition, no matter how much my competitors whine. If on the other hand, in our earlier example, I maintain it by buying up or entering into long-term exclusive supply arrangements mm -hmm. with all of the key suppliers, that's going to raise competitive concerns. Um, there are some jurisdictions, the U.S. doesn't, uh, but there are some jurisdictions that off, also challenge what would be called exploitative conduct by a dominant firm, charging high prices mm -hmm. and, the, and the like. Um, that's nothing more than the mere exercise of market power. Charging a high price does nothing to further entrench your market power mm -hmm. because it actually sends a signal for new other people to come into the market because of the high prices. So for that reason, they don't challenge it. It's not illegal in mm -hmm. the United States as far as the federal antitrust laws are concerned. The third category is anti-competitive mergers. Uh, and what you're concerned about there is Firms are told they can't get together and agree on price, so instead of getting together and agree on price with my competitor, I buy up my competitor. <laughs> That's a very convenient arrangement. Well, you can't do that. <laughs> um, but the, you know, the vast majority, I would say, you know, looking at the statistics the FTC and DOHA have had over the last you know, 30 years that I've been there on pre-merger filings, you know, low single-digit number of those filings, le less than 5%, um, raise any competitive concerns, and an even smaller percentage of them actually result in the merger being challenged or abandoned. Mm. Most mergers are competitively benign, don't raise significant competitive concerns, um, and are quickly uh, cleared by the competition agencies. The fourth area, which is not a law violation, uh, but we talked about the FTC having the consumer protection and competition mandates. We also have a, a competition advocacy mandate. So competitors might say, I can't get together and agree with my, my competitors to fix price. I can't buy them because the FTC is going to block that merging monopoly. So what I'm going to do is exercise my First Amendment rights and petition the government to create barriers to entry by putting in all these overreaching regulatory restrictions that mm. make entry difficult, if not impossible, so that I can exercise market power. Um, that's not illegal mm. if it's done properly, um, but that's something where you know the FTC has and will comment on those laws, basically saying, think about the market dynamics. Um, is the restriction, is the regulation you're putting in broader than necessary to mm. accomplish its objectives? Um, might it actually result in creating barriers to entry and in the long run doing more harm to consumers? Well, and again, those <laughs> potential secondary and tertiary effects out from that, uh, the, the un unintended consequences right. of it. Um, so, you know, when, uh, we've, been, we've been hitting on it throughout the, 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 the whole interview so far. When a, a firm actually achieves that, that you know, significant market power. Um, you know, really, what 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 are the effects of that? And and I think you, you know, you mentioned again that really the goal is to raise prices without um, it harming profits. Well, I'm I'm not quite sure of your question. I mean, you know, again, there there, there are two effects to it. Um, maybe effects not the right term. You know, if it's if it's if the market power is achieved for sinister purposes, <laughs> and by sinister mean, well maybe sinister means, um, then the concern is higher prices, um, less choice, um, less innovation. Um, on the other hand, you know the dynamics of, of competition are such that that's the driving force, and and if the firm is trying to achieve it uh, by by responding to consumer demand and producing the products 
in the, the choice, the color, the quantity, whatever uh, that consumers want, um, the reward should be I've got my market power if you have market power mm-hmm. uh, and I charge what I want. And and again, that, you know, kind of be circling right back to the beginning where it can get kind of murky of, of you know, is, is that market power deserved from, you know, highly competitive uh, practices that have, have allowed that firm to, to rise to the top? And if they continue to provide the highest quality product at a uh, the lowest possible or at least a very reasonable price, yeah. you know, should we interrupt them doing that versus, you know, how, sure. how easily that can can flip and, and become anti-competitive? There's antitrust law and antitrust policy, and they're mm-hmm. intertwined. And the policy considerations come into play in that type of a situation. I, I talked earlier about that case from the 40s with Judge Learned Hand. You know, you tell <laughs> them to go out there and name. compete... It's a great name uh, for a judge. You go out and compete, and you win, and now you want the government, your competitors want the government to come in, or consumers want the mm-hmm. government to come in and say, regulate their prices. Um, so you got to think about the policy implications of it. Uh, you know, the regulation of those prices saying you can't charge this high of a price might have some short-term uh or what we would call static dynamic, static benefits for consumers, but you got to balance the long-term trade-off mm-hmm. on that. What's my incentive to continue to innovate if I know once I capture the market, the government's going to come in throw and tell up. me you can't charge that yeah. high of a price? Throw up a price ceiling, right? And then, well, which then de-incentivizes innovation, which maybe not in the short term, uh, but in the long term harms consumers yeah. uh, and, and and it's you know as you mentioned earlier the high price is a signal to others in the industry to either produce more if they're currently in the mm-hmm. market or to enter the market because there's profits to be had it's that incentive to get mm-hmm. into the market um, I mean I understand consumers you know they go to the store and they see prices are up um, but you know why are they up are they up yeah. because of an anti-competitive problem which should be attacked or are they up for other reasons or, or, yeah you know is it possible that the price is up because uh the quality of the product is significantly higher uh, than it used to be or you know the again my uh my iphone 10 right now does a lot more stuff than my iphone 3 so perfectly reasonable uh you know i wasn't thrilled paying for it but perfectly reasonable of apple to charge more for it oh, uh, sure sure you i mean i've i've had plenty of cases over my career where um or i've seen plenty of cases where the nominal price has not gone down but because of some anti-competitive conduct they've reduced the quality mm. so your quality adjusted price really has gone up yeah and consumers are worse off yeah and, and well and and again Depending on yeah which of those variables is is moving, uh, the 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 price may go up because the quality is going up. The price may go up, but the quality is going down. The price might the price might stay the same or go down, but the quality is dropping. And again, it all changes the dynamic of of whether or not that's anti-competitive uh, behavior. And and again, it's. Uh, you know, one of the the regular themes of the podcast is that a, an issue being complex is not is not a vice. Like these issues are complex; they can't be distilled down to a talking point because economics is really complicated. Well, it is, and I and I think um, in some of these cases, the antitrust analysis um, is very complex, or we don't have enough familiarity with the market yet. Uh, and if you intervene too soon um, you could do more harm than actually mm-hmm. good well and, and especially if it is part of the the anti-competitive behavior may be incentivizing further competitive behavior and if you intervene it cuts that off and I, again I, I, I have to imagine it's a tough job to have uh, but uh, any uh, parting thoughts 
No, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I think it's an interesting topic. I hope your listeners uh, found it interesting. I'm sure, given my listenership, I'm sure they will. Uh, thanks for coming on, and uh, thanks for taking the time. Um, any uh, uh, resources that the FTC has uh, that uh, you want to advertise? Uh, well, certainly go to our website. There's a lot of information on there, both from the competition and consumer protection side, a lot of materials. Um, I don't know if it's still on the website, but we used to have what was referred to as the Plain English Guide to Competition Law or some, something to that effect, um, which gives you some examples of uh, conduct that may raise competitive concerns and mm. conduct that won't um, or shouldn't. Um, some of that, I, again, I don't know uh, if that's still on the website, but there are a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, brochures and tools on there. Uh, from both missions. Outstanding. Well, thank you very much. And uh, uh, yeah, we'll have to uh, come back and have you back on uh, for a future episode. Thank you much. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, that's our show. No, and then I will mention that uh, we kept talking about it after we had finished recording and uh, we'd talked during the episode about how, um, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you don't really get a uh, a choice between Coke or Pepsi, you know, Coke or Pepsi have a contract with that restaurant and they, you know, uh, you, you get what you get. Either you get Coke or you get asked is Pepsi. Okay. So, uh, but in the, in the spirit of, of the complexity of market power, it is important to note that there is competition going on for those contracts. Coke and Pepsi bid to be the, uh, company that provides the soft drinks to each restaurant so uh you know even even where again it may seem that there isn't that kind of direct competition or that direct consumer choice that would lead to competition there is still competition going on and you know as you can tell from the episode you know it's very much in the spirit of the the complexity of market power uh as always if you'd like to tell me why i'm wrong come on out and join us on our facebook group uh, you can post a comment or suggest a topic for a future episode. Uh, if you're not a Facebook user, you can always just email me directly at okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. All one word, no comma, no apostrophe. Uh, be sure to take a minute, and, uh, and it really only takes a minute to uh, go on to iTunes and leave some feedback, uh, give us a rating, give us a review. Uh, it really helps keep us uh, uh, up towards the top of the list as far as economics podcasts. And uh, that really helps to expand the listener base. Uh, thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro. Uh, don't forget uh, to check out my other podcast if your interests include both economics and wedding planning. Uh, it's called Let's Plan a Wedding. Uh, my fiance and, and I sit down and discuss things involved in planning our wedding and planning weddings in general. And of course, as always, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with another uh, chapter from The Wealth of Nations and then back in two weeks for another topic episode. With that, I've been Dave Yost and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong.